First Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab, Joab's brother Abishai, the son of, of Zeruah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Paul, Saul sleeping with, within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given you your enemy into your hand this day. Now let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. For the Lord forbid that I should put, on, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep, because a, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Abner answered, Who are you calling the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear and the jar of water that is at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let the Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out of this day. Excuse me. Now therefore, let the Lord, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out of this day day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like the one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes. This day, behold, I have acted foolishly, and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was, my, was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that you have graciously given to us. 
We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of not only hearing it read, but, Lord, having it um, on our laps or even in our, in our computers or laptops. Lord, we just, just thank you, Lord, that we have your truth given to us, Lord, so that we can not only understand who you are, but we can understand what you desire for us. And this morning, Lord, would we come before you humbly, desiring, Lord, to be taught by you and changed by you and instructed um, from your word, but, Lord, that we would be uh, fashioned to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see our own sinfulness and our own struggles and our own trials, but, Lord, may we not stop there. May we ultimately see that you are a great sovereign God who is over all that, guiding his children um, to do what you've called them to do. And Lord, help us today as we consider this text. Um, Lord, just, just implant it in our hearts so that we can learn and live from it, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, <clears throat> as some of you know, I wasn't here this last Sunday. Um, I actually flew out to Virginia to join my son and to drive in his truck all the way from Virginia here to California. Um, it is a trip that I have never done before, um, and I'm not saying I would never do it again. Um, it, wa it was not a, a sightseeing trip, um, although we saw a lot of things. Um, but it was a long trip, took four days, between 11 hours and 13 hours every day. Um, we saw a lot of things, and just, just a couple of things that, that come to mind, just reflecting on that journey. Um, just so you know, there are a lot of trees in the United States, okay? In case you're wondering whether there's a lack of trees, there's not, okay? Um, certainly more on the East Coast, um, thick, just abundance of trees. Um, the other thing I would say that is something to be reminded of is um, there really is a lot of room for growth in the United States. It's a lot of land, a lot of empty land. A lot of empty land where there's nothing going on. Um, we don't have to worry so much about whether there's room for people or not. Okay, I'm just telling you. And I'm not trying to be political here. It's just one of the things that you, you get impacted with and you drive across our great country. It's a lot of land. Um, speed limits in other states are higher than, the United St than, than in California. Did you know that? I was taken back. We were going through Kansas and it was 75 miles per hour. I actually took a picture thought, this is great. And then we got into Wyoming. And it was 80 miles per hour. Driving 80 miles per hour with a clear conscience. <laughs> Waving at police officers as you go by. It's a whole new experience. All right? Um, the, the Rockies are beautiful. Fortunately, we didn't have to go in the thick of it. You kind of drive around it as you go. But you could see it off in the distance. Just some beautiful, beautiful countryside that we went through. And, and the point here is this. We, we learn lots of lessons when we go on a journey. And if you look at your life, your life has, if you want to put it this way, has been a journey. And it has been an opportunity for you to learn lots of lessons. As we come to 1 Samuel 26, this is actually kind of a focal point chapter. It is where we see the fruit of the lessons that God has been teaching David, not just over the past couple of chapters, but even from the beginning of his being anointed, that are bearing fruit now and are seen and are on display in this chapter. It's really a, a beautiful passage of scripture that, that brings things together. And so I would like for us to, to look at it this way. In, in, in 1 Samuel 26, we see that while David has been on the run from Saul, he has grown in his understanding of God and his ways. So, you know, as Saul comes chasing David, as David is hiding in a cave, as he's dodging a spear, as he's running away from an army of 3,000 men, God has been teaching David. And David has been learning about God and about his ways. And if you remember, God had repeated um, the promise that he had given to David about his anointing through the lips of many other people, in particular Jonathan, even from Saul, then from Abigail, and now we're going to see it again in this passage, Saul kind of reaffirms that. And so here is David on this journey, learning a lot of lessons, being reinforced with the reality that he is going to be the king of Israel. He's the one that God has chosen. 
But it's also, if you look back at the last couple of chapters, in that, in that section, we were actually in a section of three chapters where the theme is all about handling revenge. And how do you respond to that? And so David, specifically, on the subject of taking things into his own hands, has had to learn some lessons here. He's, he's had to learn that, that, um, that it is God that intervenes and rescues David. We certainly saw that uh, when David finds Saul in the cave. And he does cut off the edge of his robe, but Saul is, is tormented in his soul, and his, the word of God comes back to him, and his conscience is gripped. And God uses the word. He uses the conscience to, to restore us and to reclaim us and to rescue us from things that we may do. And we saw last time we were in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 25, we saw that David was rescued by this beautiful woman by the name of Abigail. David, you know, with his feathers up, beating his chest, is going to go down, and he's going to wipe out Nabal and all of his family, which is the men in particular. But here comes Abigail, and she reasons with him, and reasons with him with discernment and clarity, and he is rescued. But ultimately, God is the one who's behind that. Now, as we come to this text, um, what we're going to see is that there are four speeches that David gives in, in the context, really, of three interactions. Um, we could break down the structure this way. There's the setting, that'll be verses 1 through 5. And then we have um, three scenes David and Abishai, verses 6 through 12. David and Abner, verses 13 through 16, which really is, is more of a, just an aspect where David is, is making a point with him. And then in scene 3, this is David and Saul. And we, we find a lot that is revealed in that section about what God has been teaching David. So contained in these three scenes are four speeches made by David that are going to reveal much about how he has grown. He has been listening. He has been learning. And he speaks to Abishai, and then to Abner, and then twice to Saul. But there's also another identifier in this chapter. And that identifier is the spear. Did you notice as it was read, the spear is mentioned many times. In fact, the spear is mentioned, I think, six times, and each of Saul's, or David's speeches, contain a reference to the spear. Now, we've seen the spear throughout his interaction with Saul, haven't we? We've seen Saul sitting on top of the hill with his commanders in this position of authority and power, and he has his spear with him. We've seen Saul in his own palace, and he has the spear, and he's using it. And now we see Saul again in this particular scene where the spear is there right next to his head because it's there ready to be used. But it's, it's also a symbol of his kingly rule, of his authority in Israel. And, and ultimately, what we get in this chapter is all of these things are coming to a point. They're all coming, so to speak, at the end of a spear. And God is making a huge point with David and to David as all of these things are now working together. So what we quickly realize in this chapter is that finally David has got the point of what God has been teaching him. He's grown in his understanding of God and his and his ways. So let's read now the setting. We'll pick it up at verse 1, and we'll just kind of make some comments along the way here just to set the stage. All right? Then the Ziphites come to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekeliah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, when you see the Zephites, you should, that should kind of, a little bell should go off in your head. These Zephites are like pesky spying, we're working for Saul, Zephites. They're like leopards that can't change their spots. They are trying to gain the favor of Saul by doing all they can to report on the activity of David. You don't, you don't want to have Zephites in your life, okay? I'm just saying, these are, not, these are not the great guys. Verse 2, so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men. This just kind of emphasizes the, the mass of, of men versus how many men David had. 3,000 men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, 
which is beside the road to the east of Jeshimon, just setting the stage. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came uh, after him into the wilderness, David set out his own spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So just get the picture here. Saul's come into the wilderness. They've come to a particular place. They consider the place pretty safe. Saul has his army around him. All right, He is in the middle. Abner, his bodyguard, is with him. That's what David is seeing as he's looking at the valley and looking where they're at from above. And as we work through this text, we will discover three areas where David demonstrates significant growth in understanding, where he's getting the point where he has learned his lesson. So here's the setting. You know something's going to happen. You know that there's something actually pretty incredible that's going to take place. Now, we've read through the passage, so you know what the end of the story is, so to speak, but you can just imagine the tension as, as someone's reading this for their first time, trying to understand what David is actually going to try and do. So let's pick it up then at verse 6. And David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Joab's uh, brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp? Here is God at work ordering the details of the story. David and Abishai enter the army by night, we're told. And they, they, they enter into the army and they enter into the camp and they finally find themselves in the actual location where Saul is and Saul's bodyguard is. And laying beside Saul is that famous spear stuck in the ground uh, right at his head. In other words, the spear is right there at a place where if Saul were to wake up, if there was an ambush, he could grab it and he could use it. But notice what happens next. When, when David and Abishai are in Saul's tent, where Saul and Abner are sleeping, they decide to have a theological discussion. Now, friends, going to Starbucks to have a theological discussion is a good thing. Okay? If you prefer Pete's, that would be good too. Maybe at a home group is a good, good thing. All right? But when you're in the middle of an enemy camp in particular in the king's tent where his bodyguard is, that's probably not the place you want to have a great discussion. I mean, you can almost imagine the kind of things that are going on there. Here they are, Saul's on the ground, and Abishai is saying, David, I can kill him if you want me to. I can end all of this. Just one thing of the spear. And of course, we're reading this and we're thinking to ourselves, shh, Abishai, be quiet. Saul might wake up. Abner might wake up. But what happens? David responds, and what does he say? He says, I am not going to kill the Lord's anointed. Now, you've got to give Abishai a break here. Why would, you, why would two guys venture into the enemy's camp, 3,000 strong, and end up in the leader's section? Why would you go there? I mean, are you really going in there because you want to steal something? Abishai's probably thinking, this is it. I'm going in. I'm going to do the job. I'm here with my uncle. Okay? But notice what David says specifically. But David said to Abishai, verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the words from Abishai come rolling out of his mouth, David is already being reminded of the lessons he learned in the cave when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe and how sorrowful he was to treat the Lord's anointed with such disrespect. And he's having a flashback to his encounter with Nabal, where he had, had to learn from Abigail the importance of divine restraint. And David's response to Abishai reveals to us the first lesson that, has grown, or that, he has, that he has grown to understand. And it is this. Opportunity for revenge does not imply permission for revenge. I just want you to think about that. Opportunity to take things into your own hands does not mean that God is giving you permission to take things into your own hands. A lot of times in Christian circles, we talk about, well, God has given me an open door. Just because there's an open door, whatever you want that to mean, does not mean that you have to walk through it. When you drive down the street and there's a road that comes up on the right-hand side, 
That doesn't mean you have to turn. You have a place that you're going. You have a plan that you're accomplishing. And so we need to be discerning. And here David is understanding that just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Now, as I've reflected on what God is doing here at Gateway over the past few weeks, might even say over the past couple of months, and I connect that to what's been going on in our culture over the past couple of weeks and months, it's clear that God is seeking to teach us how to use divine restraint. There's no, there's no surprise to me that in chapter 24 and chapter 25, God is just hammering this, this nail of, listen, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All right? Don't take things into your own hands. Allow me, a sovereign God, to be the God of this world. And so in June, of course, we're all hit with the Supreme Court decision to recognize and legalize same-sex marriage. And of course, and I mean this honestly, any faithful Bible-believing Christian would not and cannot agree with that decision because the scriptures are clear that marriage is only to take place between a man and a woman. And so I think it was easy for all of us to allow our emotions to run all over the place. So you probably experienced some of that. What do we do? How do we handle this? How do we respond? There's, there's anger, there's frustration, there seems like this, this, this rug was pulled out from under us. Our whole fabric of our society seems to be, be crumbling, um, or unraveling, I should say, and this Judeo-Christian ethic seems to be disappearing and being replaced with this mindset that is twisted and really has no foundation except for whatever is blowing in Christian culture and whatever satisfies people's flesh. But friends, it's not new. This has been going on for a long time. But I mean, that decision kind of brought out all those emotions because many of us went to Facebook, many of us picked up newspapers, turned on the TV, and it was just like, you know, pictures of the White House in a rainbow, um, not pointing, of course, to Christ, um, looking at Facebook and people actually clicking likes to statements that say, ah, oh, love wins. And you're just kind of like, not only upset with what's happening in our culture. Now you're upset with people who call themselves Christians who are saying, this is the right thing. This is a good thing. Friends, it's a difficult time. And in the midst of all that, God is saying, use divine restraint. Divine restraint. You don't have to jump and barrel in just because there's an opportunity to respond to that Facebook post doesn't mean you have to. So when we... Um, when we find ourselves in those situations, it is, it is really difficult to sort it through. Let me ask you this question. What has drawn out your anger in the past month? Is it the LGBTQ ruling on same-sex marriage? Is it the videos exposing the despicable and depraved activities of Planned Parenthood? Anyone affected by that? The evidence is so clear, it's so damning, yet what we hear in the media is that the ones who took these videos are the extremists and they're the zealots. They're the problem. Of course, these videos are edited, so you can't trust them to be truthfully presenting what's going on. Or, or maybe it's the outcry of the death of Cecil the Lion, who was killed by this evil American hunter in Africa. Rrr. I mean, there's got to be a cartoon coming out about this. I mean, you, just, you just know there is. You know, when Jimmy Kimmel can weep over a lion's death as if that lion is Simba from The Lion King and ignore the evidence of videos that are showing not only the death of little babies, but the selling of human parts, we're in a twisted nation. We're in a twisted place. And the problem is... We want to we come out and just kind of allow our flesh to kind of go to that. And, and God is saying, hold back. There's the right way to do this. I have called you to live in this ungodly place. And there's a way to do it. And there's a right way to do it. Now, friends, it's interesting, just, just to highlight a little bit, there was a, an article that came out um, by entitled, In Zimbabwe, We Don't Cry for Lions. Anyone see this or read it? Um, I think it's a guy from um, Wake Forest, guy from Africa, from Zimbabwe, who's in the medical program 
um, in, in, in Wake Forest, and uh, this, is, this is what he said in this article. His name is Goodwell Nzu. He says, In my village in Zimbabwe, surrounded by wildlife conservation areas, no lion has ever been beloved or granted an affectionate nickname. They are objects of terror. He goes on to tell how lions would menace his village from time to time, killing small animals, um, even mauling people who were protecting their crops from other animals that would come and stomp on them. And if they had to walk anywhere, they could, I mean, the kids couldn't go out and play by themselves. If they actually had to walk somewhere, they had to go with people who had machetes, who had spears, and who had axes, because there's a lion around. So when the lion was finally killed, it wasn't a time for mourning, no, it was a time for the village to rise up and celebrate. So as he reflected on the news that he was hearing all over American media, he was left perplexed. And I'm just pulling some words out of his, out of his comments here. He was perplexed by American romanticism with violent animals like Cecil the lion. Cecil's dead. That evil hunter. But what about all the damage that Cecil did as a lion in hurting villages and people in those villages? Perplexed by the fact that Americans care more about African animals than about African people. Perplexed by the fact that Americans are more saddened by the death of a lion than the deaths of villagers through hunger, political violence, or by hunger. Now, I, I share all this just to, to make a point. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world that would give us opportunity to say, I'm going to take this into my own hands in some way, shape, or form to respond in such a way that our flesh comes out because of the twisted happenings and ideology and practices of an ungodly culture. And we might feel justifiable in our response, but friends, even righteous anger so quickly can turn to sinful anger and sinful fleshly desires. Now, remember, your opportunity for revenge does not equal permission for revenge, or your opportunity for taking something into your own hands does not mean permission to do that. And so as you interact with people and they bring things up, you might want to jump on them and correct them, but you've got to be careful. There's a right way to go about it. Use divine restraint. And here David, David is understanding that the, the opportunities that he has had to kill David are not permissions for him to do so. He's had to learn that over and over again in the cave with Nabal and Carmel, and now here in, in Saul's dwelling in the midst of this camp while he's debating theology with Abishai. So David's next words continue to reveal how much David has grown in his understanding in another area. Verse 10, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or, or, the, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is uh, at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So what is David saying here? And here's the next principle. Some things are just better left to the sovereignty of God. This is kind of like the, the, the other side of the coin, so to speak. You know, don't take things into your own hands. But now, Sometimes it's better to take that, that hurt or that struggle and actually turn it over to God. And now he's, he's certainly remembering his encounter with Abigail in the story there of Nabal in chapter 25, where she, God used Abigail to bring him to a place of divine restraint because he was, he was going to go out there and he was going to do something horrible to these people that would betray what the Lord's anointed should be doing and have guilt on his hands. And when David handed Nabal over to God in his heart to deal with um, as the one who promises vengeance is mine, I will repay, he personally saw God fulfill that promise with, when Nabal died some very soon days later, but not by David's hands. Now friends, there, there, there are times when, when we need to Rather than take things in our own hands, we need to actually kind of step back and, and, and purposely in our hearts say, God, I'm handing this over to you. Have you ever been there? I mean, you just want to go in and you want to control it and you want to do it, but you have to say, God, I'm have to, I have to hand this over to you. And it is the right thing to do. 
So now David is exercising faith in his sovereign God and is saying, God might strike Saul. Or maybe he'll die of natural causes, or possibly he will die in battle. There's many possible ways as to how Saul is going to die, but what I will tell you is that he's not going to die at my hands. I'm giving him over to God. I'm letting him be the one who controls that scenario. Is that how we think? Do we believe that our God, the God of the Bible, the God who created us, called us, elected us, predestined us, and adopted us into his family, do we we believe that he can be trusted with what he says? Do we believe that some things must just be left to God? Something took place in my life a few years back for a season. I was in deep struggle in my heart. Someone did something against me, and I found myself out of necessity dwelling on that particular wrong. Now, so much so, there were many nights that I couldn't sleep because in my heart, I was plotting ways of revenge. You see, the people that were supposed to be taking care of this problem were not doing due diligence. They weren't doing their job. And I knew that I could do the job if they weren't going to do the job. And because the job needed to be done, in my heart, I was doing the job. And yet, God had to speak into my heart, and I had to listen to the counsel that he gave me through my conscience, through the word, even through the counsel of other people. I had to decide something. Either I was going to trust my sovereign God, or I was going to take things into my own hands. If I was going to hand the whole offense over to God, then I also had to be obedient to God to respond to this offense in a way that would honor him and glorify him and not consume my soul with bitterness. Now friends, that is not an easy place to be, but it is the right place. And there are times when we're just like, I could do this and it might cause more trouble, but at least vengeance will be exercised. We need to step away and say, God, you're sovereign. You take care of this. And friends, have you ever been there? Maybe, maybe today there are things that have happened in your life and you're still bitter and angry and you have at times exercised things to kind of satisfy your own vengeance. You've gone and you've done things or you've taken things into your own hands. Maybe it's time to Stop. And say, God, what are you trying to teach me? I want to honor you. I want you to be sovereign in my life. I want to be responsible with the things you've given me to be responsible. This is not saying don't be responsible, but there's sometimes there are things in life that even though you're being responsible, your responsibility will not do the job. And only God can do it. And that's not a bad place to be. Because the most wise person in the whole world the most just person in the whole world is not you. It's the creator of this universe. And so when you hand over that offense to him, you're handing it over to someone who understands and who knows. So in other words, what I had to do is I had to put off anger, put off vengeance, put off bitterness and plotting and put on the new self in the form of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness, which was difficult. It meant I had to step away and stop trying to control things in my heart. I had to preach the gospel to myself and so trust that his ways are the best ways. And this is what David does, friends. But he had to learn it over time. See, God was teaching him over time. He was reinforcing these lessons through trials and difficulties. But here we find David in 1 Samuel 26 as a changed man. He won't kill Saul. That is settled. But he will take the spear and the water jug. (laughs) But he won't kill Saul. Let's continue reading. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. You can just imagine David and Abishai getting back to the rest of the men waiting on the hill overlooking the camp saying, it was amazing. There's 3,000 men. Me and David, we crept into the camp. Oh, we were quiet. We were good. And we did it so well that we found ourselves right there where King Saul was and Abner was, and neither of them woke up. 
spear was at his head, the water jug was there. I mean, this was absolutely incredible. It was amazing. But we know something that David and Abishai didn't know. And the narrator tells us. The narrator sets the reader straight, doesn't he? He gives us the insight into what's really going on, where the power really resides. And it isn't David, and it's not Abishai, their strength, their skill, or their stealth. Look at verse 12. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Isn't it? I mean, it's interesting. Isn't it? God allows David and Abishai to think, hey, listen, this is, yeah, you used your stealth. You were really skillful. Saul wasn't going to wake up. I mean, here they are having a theological discussion. They could have talked like this, and they wouldn't have woken up. Why? Because God had put them into this deep sleep. God was exercising his power as part of his sovereignty. And so here's the principle. Here's the point. Don't underestimate the power of God's sovereignty. Do you believe that God is at work in the affairs of man? I hope the answer is yes. And do you believe that God can do incredible things that maybe you don't even know about as he is working the affairs of man, accomplishing his purposes in carrying out his sovereign plan? And the answer is yes. That's the kind of God he is. And every once in a while, we kind of connect dots and we're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. But most of the time, these things are happening. God's power is, is at work and we don't even see it. We might even be tempted if we were David in a similar situation say, yeah, you know, I learned those skills when I was younger. Stealth, quietness. I'm really gifted. When it was all God's doing that orchestrated everything. My friends, we, we need to learn that lesson, don't we? When you're convinced in your heart that God wants you to pick up that phone and ask to talk to that person who's hurt you deeply, only expecting more and more abuse, don't underestimate the power of God to bring about reconciliation. When you've been sharing the gospel with that person repeatedly for years, don't give up. Don't underestimate the power of God in the lives of people. When you're in a difficult situation and it seems like there's no hope, don't underestimate the power of God. Now, you may not see fireworks. You may not see mountains moving and reorganizing themselves. But God's ways are mysterious. They're wondrous. But more than often, we don't see his hand at work. But God is always carrying out the details of his plan. Now, as many of you know, as I mentioned, um, I went to Virginia to pick up my son, Gavin. And while he was in the Marines, he, he went to boot camp and what's called SOI. The next step was to go into some training for what was called Fast Company. And there was a, um, there was a, a military base where he was stationed, and it was kind of on the border of Virginia and North Carolina. It was kind of a little bit out in the boonies in that area. And um, one of the things that we were praying about for Gavin was like, you know, where is he going to worship? What kind of church is he going to go to? And we were just, my wife and I were praying about it. I know others were praying about that too. And I knew that one of my friends, he was actually my best man, and I was his best man. He was an associate pastor out there about 40 minutes away. But this is quite a distance away from where that church was. And I think, Gavin, maybe the first time you said you, you, you took a taxi and then a bus, and it just took a long time, and on Sundays you don't have much transportation going on. It was a lot of difficulty. But while he was at that church, he was introduced to a guy who was a leader of, a, of the adult Bible school, or a, adult Sunday school class. And um, he and his wife invited Gavin to come over to their home, come to find out that he and his wife literally lived, lived across the street from that base. And said to Gavin, listen, anytime you want to come to church, what? Just let us know. Bring who you want. We'll take you. And so they were able to develop this relationship. They would go to church with them. They would have meals with them. And Gavin, he was able to take some of his friends along with him along the way. That was just a, just a total blessing for us as parents. But here I am now. Uh, as I go out there, it's, it's uh, Thursday night. And Gary and Joy are their names. They're at the house where my, my best man 
lives, and we're, we're having pizza, we're having fellowship. I've met them for the first time. And I'm talking to Joy, his wife. And <clears throat> Joy starts talking. She says, you know, my, I want you to know that, that my parents um, were evangelists by the name of Yost. And my parents were best friends with your pastor in Michigan. In fact, I have been to the church that I was the associate pastor at in Michigan, and I have been involved in special music there. And we just both kind of sat there thinking, all right, God orchestrated all these affairs that here's someone that is connected to me, my history, my life, kind of my, my passion for ministry, and here they are taking care of my son. And we would answer something like that by saying, isn't it a small world, right? What a small world it is. No, I would say it is a providentially ordained world because God is at work orchestrating the affairs of men. This kind of stuff happens, friends. And I stepped back, and we, were just, we just both kind of laughed and shook our heads and just said, you know what, what, what an amazing connection who you are, just having an Im impact on my son's life, and yet there's history that we didn't even know was there. God's providence, God's sovereignty. Are we willing to listen and learn the lessons that God wants us to learn? I love the story that I read this week that was recounted by John Flavel, um, well-known pastor. He tells the story of a woman by the name of Mrs. Honeywell, or Honeywood, I should say, who was really struggling with her assurance of salvation. She was a committed Christian, some things had happened in her life, and she, she just felt that God had abandoned her. And so she picked up a, a glass goblet from the table, and, and she said, as, uh, as I, am, I am as sure to be damned as this glass is to be broken. And she took that glass goblet, and she, with all her strength, threw it to the ground. The pastor there, trying to counsel her, he just throws it to the ground, and the goblet bounces. And the pastor was able to say, mm-hmm. Take advantage of the opportunity to say, you know what? What you think may be happening may not be what is actually happening here. He was able to use that. Listen, God, God can teach us, and he does teach us, and he continues to teach us if we're willing to listen. Don't be surprised at the power of God and his sovereignty. Now let's move on to this next section that I'm calling a greater understanding of right worship. David, as the anointed one, is now in this little section here going to be faced with some worship realities. Now there's this little encounter that takes place, first of all, with David and, 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 um, and Abner. And it's kind of like David coming out and just taunting Abner. It kind of begins the conversation that he has with Saul. But he basically says, hey, Abner, Mr. Bodyguard, where are you? You know, you're not doing your job, Abner. You know, what if someone came into the camp? into the king's tent. Well, someone's done that. See the spear? See this water jug? You should be dead. All this stuff is going on. There's some sarcasm, some taunting. But then Saul hears this. He hears David's voice. And we, we pick the, the story up here in verse 17 and said, this is David, uh, Saul speaking, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. Now, so David has gotten the attention of both Abner and Saul, and now he speaks to the heart of the matter. And notice what he says, verse 18. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after this servant, speaking about himself, for what have I done? What evil is on my hands? David knows that he is innocent. In other words, that he is not responsible for the things that Saul and other people have accused him of. That Saul, actually, in his kind of madness, has pursued the, the, the death of David. And so he continues by, by basically you know, saying, why are you pursuing me? What have I done? Verse 19. Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of my servant, or his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may he be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. 
Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Now what David is expressing to Saul here is evidence of David's growth in his understanding of right worship before the Lord. Here is what David is saying to Saul. First of all, he's saying this. You know what? It's possible that I may have sinned. Just go back and see what it says. He says, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. In other words, God actually may be using Saul as the vehicle to bring discipline on David. David knows that he's innocent of the things that Saul is accusing him of, but there may be something else going on in David's life that Saul is used, or that God is using Saul to impact now David and to bring discipline and chastisement on him. That's what we have going on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and verses 5 and 6. It says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when David says, listen, maybe God is using you to chastise me, how does he respond to that? He says, well, if that's the case, then what am I going to do? I'm going to offer up a sacrifice. I want to know what that sin is. I'm going to confess that sin. I'm going to repent of that sin, and I'm going to offer a sacrifice in praise to God for using you to fashion and shape my life so I can be more conformed to my God. Friends, that's worship. That's practical, ongoing Worship in the heart of an individual that recognizes, you know what? Not only is God at work fashioning and shaping me, God is at work also confronting me of my sin. And sometimes he uses other people to do that. And other people that might be my enemies to confront me with my own sinfulness. And so in the same way, we grow in our understanding of worship when we consider that God uses others to bring about his purposes in exposing our sinfulness. We may feel innocent or feel justified that our words and actions are right, but we must be willing to consider the fact that we have sinned. And if that is true, we need to come confessing our sin. In other words, seeing it as God sees it. Repenting of our sin, turning away from that sin, and worshiping him from a clear heart through the gospel that promises that our sins are forgiven. So here's worship, friends. But there's another form of worship. There's another aspect of worship that comes up in this passage. You can hear the anguish in David's words because he has been pushed away from the presence of God. Verse 19, But if it is men, may they be accursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. The heritage of the Lord is the land, the promised land of Israel. Saying, go serve other gods. In other words, leave the borders of Israel and go worship other gods. And David's like, I don't want to worship other gods. I want to worship the God of Israel. Now, he's not, he's not tempted to worship other gods. I mean, David didn't actually think that God was imprisoned within the borders of Israel. He didn't think that, that one could praise, uh, couldn't praise God uh, of Israel outside of the borders. And he didn't think that that going into the pagan territory meant that David would be coerced into worshiping other gods. In fact, if you read the Psalms, in particular Psalm 63 and 136, David understands the, 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 the fact that God is, is not bound by the borders of Israel. And we would understand that too, right? God is not bound by space or time. We worship God wherever we are. But in Israel's economy... To worship God meant that you wanted to come face-to-face -face with God. And where do you come face-to-face -face with God? That would be in the temple of God, which, of course, was in the center and the heart of Israel. And what he's talking about here is his longing and his desire to worship God in corporate worship, in, in Israel, in, in, among the people of God. But he's been pushed out. Now, friends, it's just a reminder to us, because we understand that God is omnipresent, and yet at the same time, we are living in a culture that kind of diminishes the actual physical church and is satisfied by saying, well, there's the, there's the universal church, that's good enough. I can just worship God where I want, how I want, from my home, that's fine. 
David says, that is not good enough for me. He's saying, I want to worship God with the people of God in the place of God for the glory of God. There's a need for the people of God to gather together and to worship God as a corporate body. And friends, as we open the pages of the New Testament, we see the church unfolded, and the church is the gathering of God's people together for the purpose of corporate worship, corporate support, corporal training, uh, corporate um, uh, praise, and, and, and the, the preaching and teaching of God's word. The church is a wonderful reality, and, and we need to, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are all here, but we've got to be careful that we, we don't allow ourselves to drift off. Now, there's certainly going to be times when we're not going to be in the church. But you know what happened last week? I'm driving down the, down the road. I was, it was my turn to drive and driving through um, Kansas. By the way, my childhood was destroyed on this trip. I'll tell you why. Because I, I used to love The Wizard of Oz. But ha- having driven through Kansas, there's, there's absolutely no reason why Dorothy would say there's no place like home. There's no reason for her to want to go back to Kansas. I'm telling you, Kansas was perfect nothingness. It was drab. It was boring. Um, but we, we, had, we were driving, and we got to a Wendy's, and there was this big long line at Wendy's. And I get a text from Randall. And Randall's in the back, and he says, Hey, Pastor Rod, do you want to listen in on the service today? <laughs> sure. And so we're in this line, we're getting lunch, the time difference and all that kind of stuff. So here I am with my, my chicken sandwich and my fries and my, I think I had a Frosty there. Um, it's confession, honey, I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, uh, but it was good. Um, <laughs> but I got in the car and I, I loaded up this app while we were staying there and, and I got like, like three quarters of JD preaching last week and Randall was in the back holding his phone. And you know what? I wanted to hear what was going on in I say, my church. When I say my church, I'm not saying it as a pastor. I'm saying my church is, I'm a participant in the body of Christ here. This is the church where I worship. And I want to be a part of that church. Now, I realize sometimes not everyone's able to do stuff like that. But there was, there was a longing. And there was like, this is great. I, I, I get to actually connect with my church, even though I'm not there. And friends, that are, those are attitudes of worship. And, and, and through your life, you're going to develop these understandings and attitudes of worship that are really, really important. That's what David was, was learning here. He, he longed to worship with the people of God in the, the city of God, in the presence of God, face-to-face with God there. Finally, we see here David learning, having a greater understanding of what I'll call divine deliverance. Leave that up there for a moment if you need that. A greater understanding of divine deliverance. Notice verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Have we heard that before somewhere? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so, Saul. I mean, you may be sincere this time. Um, You really may mean it. but I just don't think so. Let's continue on. Behold, I have acted foolishly, he says, and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put, put uh, out of my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious to stay in my sight, so my life became precious in the sight of the Lord, and he may deliver me out of all tribulation. Now, I want us to think a little bit about what's going on here. Just think back in David's life at the many times that he was in a trial or tribulation and he is delivered. I actually want, to, want, to re, want us to, in our minds to reach back before David comes on the scene. But what we learn about David, that is when David was a shepherd, that he was delivered by God through the skill of, of his sling, killing a lion, killing a bear. Oh no, I hope the lion wasn't Cecil. All right, that's all another story. All right. And then as David enters the story, when Israel is gathered against the Philistines and Goliath is there, I mean, I think it's appropriate to say that David, it wasn't his strength, it was God that delivered Israel through David. And then David 
becomes one of the, the key men in Saul's leadership. And he goes on these campaigns. And every time David goes out, God delivers David and provides for David and brings him back victorious. And then when Saul three times throws his spear at David, David is delivered again. When Saul, or David is in his home and Saul's men are pursuing him, entering into the home, and with the help of Michael, David is delivered once again. When he enters Gath, the city there, he, he feigns um, being, being insane, and God once again delivers him. When Saul and his men come and pursue him, this is a few chapters earlier, if you remember the story, they're going down one side of the mountain, uh, David's men are going down the other side of the mountain, they're totally outnumbered, and they're almost getting to each other, and all of a sudden, a messenger comes and says, oh, the Philistines are attacking, boom, and Saul has to leave. God delivers once again. And then when Abigail comes and stands before David when he is ready to kill Nabal and his men, God is once again rescuing and delivering David out of his revengeful heart. You see, God is delivering David. He has a history of it, and David is learning about this deliverance. He's learning that his God is a God that delivers. His God is a God that rescues. And so God will continue to deliver David um, uh, or his children after David uh, a long time. Even when they must face being taken away into captivity, God promises to deliver them. You think of the major prophets. And when we open the pages of the New Testament, we see the story of his deliverer, Jesus Christ, unfolding there on the cross. It is on the cross that Jesus dies in our place, took upon himself the sin of the world, and was the ultimate deliverer. And when we look at the end of the Bible, we see once again that the deliverer will, will come and conquer the dragon that has been slithering and growing since the Garden of Eden, and he will ultimately deliver this world. God, our sovereign God, is a God that delivers his children. See, David had to learn that. We are all people who are in the midst of learning that truth. And David is growing in his understanding through the trials and the difficulties that he's facing that, that even in the hard things, God is delivering and that he is responsible to trust God. So friends, do we give God credit when he deserves credit for the ways that he is at work in our lives? Or would you say, you know, I was really stealthy. I was really skillful. Or would you say, you know what? I may have some gifts, but God is the one who's accomplishing all this. God is the one who's provided. God is the one who's delivered me. Do we see how the trials we go through are training ground for our growth as God's children? As we look back on our lives, we see that God has also ordered the affairs of our lives in such a way that he is constantly delivering us. Now it appeared that Saul was remorseful. There's a confession, I have sinned. There's, there's humility, I've acted foolishly. There is sincerity, I have made a mistake. But because Saul had been a fool, that doesn't mean that David needed to be one too. So David doesn't go back with Saul. He goes back into the wilderness, not under the care of Saul the king, but under the care of his sovereign God. Now friends, there is no better place for us to be than in the care of our sovereign God. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. Again, from the lips of Saul here. He's encouraged once again. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This would be their last meeting. Now, let's bring this to all to a close. I have three things that I think just kind of help us wrap our hands around some of the principles that we're looking at today. And I'm, I'm, I'm stating these in such a way that I'm, I'm asking you to consider these questions. Number one, are you willing to learn all the lessons God wants you to learn? When I'm doing biblical counseling, one of the things I'm doing on a sheet of paper is as I'm listening to the counselor, or listen to the person I'm counseling, as, I'm, as they're talking, as we're interacting, I'm writing down 
What are the theological lessons? What are the things about Christ? What are the things about the gospel that God is revealing through the trials that this person's going through? I want to help them see that even though they may be in the midst of what seems to be chaos, that God is still at work teaching them, guiding them, molding them, shaping them. How have you been delivered from your trials? How have you seen God's sovereign purposes at work in your life? How has God used people or circumstances to remind you to keep walking down God's path and to follow God's will? See, God is in the business of growing us through our trials. See, we have this faulty idea in broad Christendom that, you know, that God doesn't want us to go through suffering. That is how we grow. That is how we learn Suffering is a part of God's tool to teach us and to mold us and to shape us. David had to suffer. Anyone here want to run around the wilderness having spears thrown at you? Of course not. But David went through it, and that was all part of God's training ground for what he was going to do as king. So don't, don't fight God in his sovereignty in allowing a trial into your life. Instead, learn all the lessons you can learn. Number two, are you willing to believe that sometimes understanding must wait, but obedience to God cannot? You ever been in a situation where you're asking yourself the question, God, I don't understand what I'm going through. (laughs) I don't know what you're doing. I can't comprehend what's happening here. Your understanding of the trial does not excuse you from being obedient to God in the midst of that trial. Lack of understanding, or I should say having understanding, does not mean, okay, now I can be obedient. You don't have to have understanding to be obedient. You don't have to be understand, have understanding to, to say, all right, this is, I may not understand what's going on, but this is how I can be obedient. I can be conformed to what God says he wants me to be in the midst of this trial. We need that truth. We need to be reminded of that. Now, that doesn't remove our responsibilities. We have responsibilities before God. So maybe your job is in jeopardy and you're like, I don't know what's happening here. Or maybe your marriage is going through some difficulty. Uh, or maybe your kids are, are, are struggling in their faith. It could be a number of different things. You say, God, I'm not sure. I don't understand what's all happening here. Okay, but how can you be obedient in the midst of this trial and be obedient to God, even though you don't understand the big picture? Number three, the final thing. Are you willing to accept that God is at work in your life in a variety of ways in order to give you fuel so that you can exercise greater faith in him? Look, all those times that David was delivered by God are just one more time that God is, in a sense, you know, putting, putting more fuel to the faith so that David will trust in him. Our biggest challenge in our Christian walk is, is, is really on two fronts. It's fighting against unbelief, and it's fighting for faith. It's fighting against the unbelief that we hear in all the voices around us that aren't God saying, you can't do this, you don't have the ability, You're, you, know, you don't have the skill, or there's no way this can happen. You fight against that, and instead you fight for faith. And to fight for faith means you're fighting to believe that what God says he will do, he will actually do even though it seems there's no way. So we're fighting. We're fighting to be people that are saying, you know what, God, you have been at work in my life. You have demonstrated your faithfulness. And so this is how I'm going to trust you. And I can say that from my life, as I look back, there have been times of great difficulty, great struggle, and God has used that to teach me that when I face new struggles, God's going to carry us through. We're going to be okay. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be more trouble. There isn't going to be more trouble. There isn't going to be more, more hurdles or difficulties or walls in front of us. But you know what? I have a God who is sovereign, in whom I can trust, one that I can believe, and I need to learn all the lessons I can learn. And when I don't understand, I still seek to be obedient to him 
for his glory. David's life and ministry is not over yet. In fact, we know that David is still going to make a lot of bad mistakes, right? But he is being groomed here by God to exercise faith so that when he steps into that role as king, he will have been prepared. God is preparing all of us in our lives through all these different trials and struggles so that we can be people of faith that are trusting in our sovereign God for his glory. Don't fight it, embrace it, learn from it, grow from it, and glorify him in it. Lord, help us today with these truths. Lord, our, our goal here is not to be like David, although there are things for us to admire about David here. But our goal here today is to ask ourselves the question, are we growing in our understanding of your sovereignty? Are we growing in our understanding of how we worship you day by day? Are we growing in our understanding of divine deliverance in our life? And if we are, is that fuel for greater faith in living for you, in, in charting a course that you've charted for us and, and walking down that path? For some, it may be a new phase in life with children. For, for others, it may be the beginning of, of, of a marriage. For others, it may be a transition that's happening later on or a job change or uh, it could be all sorts of things, Lord. Just help us to reflect on our lives and to give you the credit that you are due for being such an awesome, incredible, great God. And may we learn through that reflection that you are calling us for things yet to come and that you have been preparing us through all those circumstances, trials, the good things even, to exercise greater faith down the road as we face new trials and difficulties, as you are at work in our lives bringing about your incredible sovereign plan to bring your son back to this earth. Lord, we, we just praise you. You are not a God who's distant from us. Lord, you're a God who's very present and very much with us. May we now honor you, live for you, learn from you, humble ourselves before you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Please rise.